This Advent season we're going to be taking readings from a number of different passages in Scripture as we focus on some of the themes that make up Christmas life for us, for all people, uh, at Christmas time. And so this morning, as we consider the theme of family at Christmas, we're going to hear from Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 to 7. And there we read, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is the word of the Lord, and we give thanks to him for it this morning. As we begin Advent 2020, we are going to be focusing on a number of the core elements of Christmas for each one of us. Regardless of what Christmas looks like this year, and I suspect your Christmas is going to look a bit different this year to the way it usually does, there are some things that will always make up the Christmas experience for each one of us, whether you're a Christian or not. We find at this time of year it's an opportunity to gather together, to be together, and the Scottish and UK governments have done what they feel they can to ensure that we are able to be together with our family over Uh, this Christmas time, and family is such a core element of our experience of Christmas. We find also uh, that food and drink is an element of our Christmas experience, not just uh, being together, but gathering around a table and eating. We don't use the language of uh, feasts anymore. It seems to have slipped into um, antiquity, and yet that is essentially what Christmas still is. It is a a Christian celebration, a a feast at the end of the year where we celebrate the birth of Christ. And being together and eating is an element of Christmas for um, almost everybody in our country. Also, at Christmas, there is an idea that it's supposed to be for all of the stress of buying presents and cooking lunch and being together with family, which isn't necessarily always the most relaxing experience, the idea of rest at Christmas is core. We take time off of our work, usually between Christmas and New Year. We have some days off to to rest and to be together, to enjoy time apart from the rest of the busyness of the year so that we can be refreshed. There is a pause for reflection as we end the year and look towards beginning a new year. And also there is uh, the giving of gifts which is maybe the thing that um, most marks Christmas, at the very least commercially in our country, and most marks it for many children, is the giving of gifts to one another, and that is part of our celebration. Even when these various things are absent from us, and we perhaps feel frustrated or lonely or um, isolated in some way at Christmas because we lack these things, They are still there in our minds. This is what we ought to have at this time of year. And it's interesting because these things all 
originate in the Christian celebration of the birth of Jesus at Christmas, and yet we've managed to divorce them from that, and they've become things in and of themselves. And I want to challenge you and encourage you this year that all of those things are good. There is nothing intrinsically wrong with any of them. And I really hope that you enjoy Christmas this year in light of those great blessings. But there is something far more in them for Christmas this year. And as you dwell on the true meaning of Christmas, all of those great things can be given additional meaning, but we can see how each one of them is reworked by Christ and turned into something truly glorious. That whether we are with our family, whether we eat and drink, whether we have gifts or rest or not, that we receive all of these things from God that not only sustain us this Christmas season, but will bless us beyond measure. And so this Sunday we're considering uh, family and the gift of family, as we come to Galatians chapter 4. The whole of Galatians is very much a book about relationships and about being a family together. And Paul, in this passage, outlines the deep significance of family, especially as we look towards the coming of Jesus at Christmas and what that means. In the opening five verses, we find Paul saying, ultimately, that as we look towards Christmas, God gives us the gift of his son so that we can become sons and daughters of God. This moves our understanding of family way beyond the simple biological family we have or the group of friends around us into something far deeper and more fundamental that cannot be taken away even in the midst of a lockdown for coronavirus. As we look at the passage, we find uh, in verses 4 and 5, Paul saying, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons, adoption into God's family as sons and daughters. And what Paul is saying here is that Jesus came at exactly the right time in history 2,000 years ago. At the the time in the Roman world, the whole Roman Empire didn't speak Latin. Greek was the language of uh, of exchange, was the language of, of commerce, as it were, of trade in the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire had essentially taken over from what was left of Alexander the Great's Greek or Macedonian Empire. And so everybody already spoke Greek. And this meant that when Jesus came, you could be born in... Persia, near the Indian border, and be able, despite the fact that you didn't speak a word of Egyptian or Hebrew or Latin or uh, whatever the local, or Spanish, whatever the local language was, you could converse with people all over the Roman Empire in Greek because everybody could know or at least understand something of that language of trade. We find also at the time the Roman Empire had introduced something called the Pax Romana. That was the the peace of Rome that meant that you could travel virtually anywhere in the Roman Empire and the Roman Empire itself would guarantee you safe passage that it clamped down hard, the Roman authorities clamped down hard on unrest between the various nation states that made up their empire. And so it meant that trade could flow freely from one side of the empire to the other, but you could travel freely from the border of India all the way to Spain in relative safety. 
And so it meant that when Jesus came 2,000 years ago and came to, to save us from our sins, there was a means of communicating the amazing truth of that good news all across the entire known world in a language that everybody could understand, the good news of Jesus' arrival as our Savior could be communicated everywhere. We find not just that on a practical reality, but when Jesus came, the entire Old Testament had drawn to a conclusion, to one great question. From Genesis through to Malachi, there had been this problem of sin that had marked every human being's life, everywhere, all over the world. And God had promised Eve, as we've been thinking about in our Genesis series, that He would bring a Savior into the world who would bring an end to sin and its consequence, death. And we find that all the way through the Old Testament, the story of how this Savior would come is drawn on a little more and a little more and a little more. And as we come to the end of the book of Malachi, the last prophet in the Old Testament, in, 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 in our Old Testament, we find there is one great unanswered question. When is the Savior coming? Is this it? Are we stuck in our sin, in this corruption that marks every one of our lives, that keeps us damaging ourselves, keeps us damaging one another, poisoning our relationships, polluting uh, the world around us, corrupting everything? Death seems to reign over all. Is this it? Or is there something more? And at that point, when that question is being asked, by Israel, Jesus comes. And more than that, Jesus comes at the right time to you and to me. He reveals Himself to us at a point in our lives where we are, um, have our eyes opened and we understand that we are sinners in need of salvation. He reveals Himself to us in such a way that we understand that we need Him more than anything else and we cast ourselves upon Him. And it's not right that we, um, that we are frustrated with ourselves that we didn't become a Christian when we were younger rather than when we were older or um, at a certain point in time and not another. Or that we were born into a, a a country where um, Christianity was not something that was known. The gospel wasn't known. And if only we'd been born in the UK or the United States or uh, Germany or somewhere else where that the gospel was more freely proclaimed and life would have been different. Christ came to you at the right time. And so as we celebrate the coming of Jesus at Christmas, as we look towards that this Advent, we celebrate the coming of Jesus into our lives as He transforms us and saves us from our sins. And we celebrate that moment when Christ came and became our Savior. If we've confessed our sins to Him, if we've cast ourselves upon Him and said, please come and be my Savior and I will follow in your way. Jesus came at the right time. We find that Jesus came uh, equipped, qualified to save us. It may be interesting for you to know on this theme of adoption into God's family that if you want to adopt a child in Scotland today, there is quite a rigorous set of guidelines that will be applied to your life to see whether you're fit to adopt the child. 
The adoption, uh, key adoption agency for Scotland wants to know um, if you have a stable home, if you are in um, excessive debt. They want to know if you smoke or if you own certain kinds of pets, certain types of dogs that are not allowed um, if you want to adopt a child. You're not allowed to be a smoker um, or an excessive drinker if you have a problem with drugs or with alcohol. They won't allow you to adopt a child. Your home has to be suitably sized to accommodate a child. And interestingly, which I didn't know, if you already have children of your own or previously adopted, they have to be at a certain age. You're not allowed to simply say, I want to adopt a child and just be given one tomorrow. There are qualifications if you want to go and adopt a child. And so there is for Jesus. We find that he comes and he is sent by God. God sent forth his son. It's not just anyone that comes to be a saviour. Jesus is not one among many of Buddha and Krishna and um, name another great figure from a religion around the world. Jesus is not like them. Jesus doesn't claim to be an enlightened human being. He comes claiming to be God himself. All the way through John's Gospel, for example, we find Jesus saying again and again when he's asked who he is, he says, I am which mirrors God's word to Moses in Exodus as he appears at the burning bush and Moses is being sent to Egypt and says, well, who will I say has sent me? And God says, tell them I am. I am self-sufficient. I am all-powerful. I need no one. I am. I exist apart on my own, complete, unlike you. And Jesus says that, and in John's Gospel, on a couple of occasions, the crowd who heard him say that knew exactly that he meant he was claiming to be God and picked up stones to stone him to death or to throw him off of a cliff. They were furious with Jesus for saying, Who are you? I am. And Jesus comes, Paul says, as God's own Son, yet born of a woman. He is both God and man, and so he is perfect as God, free from sin, and so not dying to pay for his own sins, as we are required to do, but dying to pay for the sins of others if he chooses. And because he is a man born of a woman, he is able to take our place, as we read in Hebrews, that Jesus became like us in order that he might be a sacrifice acceptable on our behalf. What Jesus was when he died is what he saved. And he was a man born of a woman under the law. And so we find that Jesus is able to die under the full penalty of the law, take all of the law's weight upon him for the sins of men and women like you and I, and bear that burden on the cross. So Jesus dies under the penalty of the law. But because he himself is sinless and has merely taken our sins upon him, when he dies and that sin is paid for, all of God's wrath is poured out upon his son for those sins and they are gone. There is nothing left to hold him in the grave. And so Christ is raised again three days later as a sign that God has accepted his sacrifice and that all our sins are gone and forgotten. And so we find that Jesus is equipped, is qualified to have us then adopted as his brothers and sisters, as sons and daughters of his heavenly Father. 
And so we find that we are adopted in verse 1 and made heirs of God, that we are literally incorporated into the family of God. We are made part of his family. And in those opening few verses, Paul says that the heirs of God, the children of God, have come along under the law. We've come under the penalty of the law. The law was revealed to Israel as a means of letting them know how sinful they were and that they were in need of a Savior and God alone could be their Savior. And for those who weren't in Israel, we have also the elementary principles of the world, which can mean many things, but I think in this case signifies the fact that every human being is born with a sense innate of morality, of things that are right and things that are wrong, things that should be done and things that should never be done, which is why every tribal people in the history of the world of recorded humanity have some innate sense of morality, of right or wrong, that goes beyond them, that transcends their society, their culture. They are guardians, they guide, they manage, and yet they're not enough. We need that point where we come into possession of that which is lacking of salvation. And Paul says, at the appointed time Christ comes. Jesus comes and becomes our Savior. And in those opening verses, Paul says, at that moment we become heirs of God. Not like children who are essentially like slaves. They are heirs of all of the household, the wealth of the household they belong to, and yet they cannot do anything with it because they are under these schoolmasters and tutors that guide them. They can't take possession of, of, of the, the, the benefits, as it were, of belonging to that household. But when they are made full heirs, when they are adopted, they they are able to take possession of what is promised for them. This is connected to um, an understanding of adoption in the ancient world that we don't really understand. In Roman culture, as in a great many other cultures of the time, um, children were little more than possessions in the household. The eldest son, who would become the the heir of the household, although he was a child, was really little more than a possession, a slave. And yet when he came into maturity, which depending on the culture could be a variety of ages in, in the Roman world, it tended to be around the age of, uh, of mid to late teens, 18, sometime around then, the father, there would be a ceremony and the father would, um, would place upon the son, would confer upon him full sonship. And at that point, he is no longer merely a child, but is the possessor of the wealth of that household, takes his part, uh, his place as a part of that household. And so he is uh, moved from being under a, a guardian into maturity and has the right of, of a full-born son. The same is true in the ancient Roman world of adoption. Interestingly enough, if you are adopted, uh, as was perfectly acceptable in Roman society, into a Roman family, you were brought in and you were made as if you were a blood relative. So you um, received all of the blessings that came. So when the father died, all of the the wealth of the household and everything else was passed to you if you were the, the firstborn, the eldest son, even by adoption in that family. And such is the adoption in the Roman world that you could not be dispossessed. A biological son could be dispossessed, could be stripped 
of all the um, of all the, the, the wealth and whatever of the household. But a, an adopted son couldn't. You were irrevocably part of that family if you were adopted in Roman society. And so Paul says that we are made heirs because Christ came at the appointed time, at the right time for each one of us. And when we are adopted, we cannot be cast back out. We are made irrevocably part of this family and are heirs to all the blessings of our adopted father, who in this case is not a human father, but is God himself. The law, common morality, makes um, not a family, but a gathering of like-minded common people. We need something that goes beyond a simple interest in Christian things, an interest in God's Word, a desire to be good and upright moral citizens to make us into a family. A family is something that is united together by common blood or adoption. And that sits outside of the law of common morals or accepted beliefs or views. And so if you are a Christian this morning, know that your family completely transcends your blood relatives or people who you have a common view with, that you worship together with Sunday by Sunday. You are part of something that can never be taken away because your family is first and foremost with God the Father and Jesus Christ His Son and the Holy Spirit. And secondly, with all of the other brothers and sisters that you have been adopted alongside and can never be separated out from. If you're not a Christian this morning, I want to encourage you that your family, your biological family, will one day be taken from you. Either by circumstances like the ones that we're in at the moment with the pandemic and the lockdown, or simply through the passage of time through sickness and death. It's the simple reality that every human being will one day die. And so our family is piece by piece stripped away from us. We lose them and they're gone. And we remember them, but they're not with us anymore. There is something far greater in the family of God. It is a family that we are connected to here in this life with our Heavenly Father as well as all our brothers and sisters. But we also have this family who will carry on with us into the life to come. We will never be separated out finally and fully from our heavenly family because of Christ's adopting work, because of the power of what He does. At Christmas, God gives us the gift of His Son so that we can become sons and daughters of God, heirs of His. We find, secondly, God gives us another gift at Christmas. He gives us the gift of His Spirit. In verse 6 we read, so that we can know our new heavenly Father. Because you see, this is part of the problem in the ancient world that you couldn't ever really know the God that you worship because they were transcendent. They sat above. They were other. They were distant. They were far away from you in every conceivable way of understanding them. But Paul says here that after we have been redeemed so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters of God, that because we are sons of God, God sends the Spirit of His Son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. We are given God's own Spirit, the Father and the, the, the Son and, and the Holy Spirit forming the, the Godhead. The Spirit then comes to us and dwells within us so that we know our Heavenly Father and we can cry out to Him, Abba, Father. Those two words 
both mean something very similar. The idea is of Abba is an, a Hebrew word meaning that sort of family way that you address your dad. It's not informal, it's not daddy in that sense, but it's the way that you would address your own earthly parent and not the transcendent creator God of the universe. When Jesus talks in his own day and says, Abba, Father, there is um, concern amongst those who listen to him that he's addressing God far, far too uh, closely. You don't address God in that sense. That's not appropriate. And yet Jesus says, that is the relationship I have. He is literally my Father. And we have the privilege of being able to say that because God sends His Holy Spirit, gives it as a gift to change us so that we can know our Heavenly Father. And that's what we see first in this verse. The Spirit is sent to change our hearts. And we, together as a family, are made into a new people. And that comes in two forms. In the chapter before this, in chapter 3, we find Paul say that we have been baptized into Christ. That is, we have been fully immersed into Jesus. We have become connected to him in a sense so that when he dies for sin, for our sin, it's like we have died. And when he is raised to new life, it's like we are raised to new life, which is why we as as a Baptist church immerse people in water and then lift them back out again uh, when they confess their faith in Jesus as a sign that they have died and are risen again, just as Jesus has died and is risen again. And so we find that internally, that is an outward symbol of an internal reality, Internally, our heart that used to beat exclusively for us now beats for someone else, for God. The center of our whole universe, we, we have not ourselves, our own wants, our own desires, cravings, yearnings, and, and so on, but we have God. His desires become our, our desires. His, um, his plan for our lives and for the, the future and for the world becomes our plan. And the Holy Spirit is the one who changes us. Our heart of stone, to quote uh, the Old Testament, uh, is taken out and a heart of flesh is given that beats for God. And because our inner nature is transformed by the presence of God's Spirit, our outer uh, nature is transformed also. We desire from that moment on to look more and more like Christ. We want to to live for Him, to worship Him, to serve Him. We want to um, be perfect as He was perfect. We want to be sinless as He was sinless. And so we strive to imitate Christ as we try and bring the outside reality and have it mirror the internal reality. We're told all the way through the New Testament that when we are uh, first saved, We are made right with God. When God looks at us, he sees a sinless son or daughter. And yet we still struggle with sin all the while. And that is because the outside reality is over time slowly being conformed to our new internal state of being. That we are one with God because of what Christ has done on our behalf. It's like 
a year ago when Elaine and I bought our house here in Livingston. There was a moment when all the legal documents were signed and in that moment that our signature and the signature of the woman selling the house were put onto those official documents, the house transferred from her ownership to our ownership. And that is what salvation is like. We, in a moment, are transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's beloved Son. A transaction takes place. We are redeemed. We are saved from that point forever. And yet, after Elaine and I bought that house, there were all sorts of things that we needed to do to the house to conform it to the kind of pattern that we wanted. Walls needed to be painted, furniture needed to be put in place, carpets uh, were changed and, and um, the way that rooms were, were laid out with furniture is different to the way that they were before. We conform the house slowly over weeks and months and years to be what we want it to be. It will eventually uh, mirror who Elaine and I and the girls are because of the way that we've organized it and the way that's the way we want to use it. And it will be different to the way it was used before. It will look different and feel different. And that is what the Christian life is like. The Spirit comes and in a moment we are transformed from darkness to light, from death to life. And we are brought into relationship with our Father so that we can cry to Him, Abba, Father, that is our Heavenly Father, come and know us and have us know you. And through that relationship over time, we are transformed. And the outer man or woman is conformed to the image of the inner man or woman, which is characterized by the Spirit of God. We are brought into relationship by the Spirit. And we find that that Spirit is sent, is gifted to us to give us intimacy with God. So it's not just that God brings us to know Him and that our eyes are open so that we can see Him and then He slowly conforms us to the kind of people who can know and love and live with our Heavenly Father. But as we cry out to Him, we are drawn into an intimate relationship with Him. We become sons and daughters who know our Father, who know that we can call out, who know that He will keep coming to us, will keep lifting us up when we fall and when we fail, will keep patching us up and turning us around and setting us off on the right path. And we become a family who also know because of that relationship with Him that we also have a relationship with all of our other brothers and sisters. It is um, that God has... Uh, sent his spirit into our hearts because you Paul says plural we are all part of this family and the spirit testifies to it that God is our heavenly father and so we're able to support one another and bless one another and build one another up in light of that relationship with him that gives life the encouragement for us as a Christian people as we hear this is that we've been adopted into a family where this Heavenly Father is not just qualified to be our Father but earnestly desires to be so and when we enter into relationship with Him He blesses us richly on and on and on and on and we fail Him and we frustrate Him and yet because of the blood of Christ that has been the means of our adoption He constantly hears us when we cry out to him, Abba, Father, forgive me, bless me, build me up, encourage me, challenge me, teach me, rebuke me, give me everything I need to be your faithful son. He always hears and responds and we know and we cry out to him. 
because we are renewed by His Spirit. And we find, lastly, at Christmas, we're not just given the gift of His Son so that we can be His sons and daughters, or that we are given His Spirit so that we can know our new Heavenly Father. We find at Christmas He gives us the gift of our family. This is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham that we've been going through in Genesis. In verse 7, Paul tells us, So you are no longer a slave, a slave to sin, a slave to yourself, to your own destruction. You are now a son and daughter of God, and if a son, an heir through God. An heir of what though? An heir of all the promises that God gives to his family. Who is his family? Well, in Genesis, God calls Abraham and says that I am going to make you a great nation. I will be your God and you will be my people. I will be a blessing through you to all the nations of the world. And it is all for God's glory. Those are the promises of God to his family. And Paul says we become heirs of those promises of God through our connection to Christ, who adopts us into the people of God, the family, the children of God. We are no longer enslaved to this world and to all of the things that entice us in this world. We are no longer enslaved to the need to fulfill ourselves constantly that will never be accomplished. We are no longer enslaved to the fear of death that results in us constantly trying to ignore death, entertain ourselves, do anything but think about our own mortality. We're no longer enslaved to that way of life. We can now live enslaved, as it were, drawn into the family of God and live for His glory, for His joy, for His satisfaction, and also for our blessing. We're no longer enslaved to the morality of the world around us simply because we ought to be. We are given a grounding for our morality that the rest of the world doesn't have. So that we act in a moral way, we behave in a moral way because our Heavenly Father is that way. He does not hate, He is not envious, He does not murder or or slander or lie or do any of these other things. And so we are like that because He is like that. We receive the, the blessings of God through our connection. We are liberated into this family and so we live for His glory. And we are made sons and heirs. We inherit the promises of God made to Abraham. We are given a family. We are made part of this greater whole. There's people beyond number. And we're connected to Christian brothers who we will never meet in this life. And it's our privilege to do so because they're our brothers and sisters. They're our family. They're our own And so we do our best for them. We bless them and we give to mission work and we send Bibles overseas and we we pray that they would be liberated from prison. They would be spared from torture. They would be um, able to go and express their love for God freely and fully in this world and that they would witness to Him. And we do that because they're ours. And we expect that they'll do that for us because we belong to them as we belong to Christ. We have uh, that place of rest that Israel is promised signified in the land of Canaan, which we find in Christ is enlarged not simply to the land of Canaan, but to the entire world. God's people inherit the whole world. As we read in Ephesians, the whole world is placed under Christ's feet at the end of all things that He might rule over all. And we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. We find that we are given... um, 
a, a place in this entire world that it will be made new for us. We are given a place of rest. So it's not just something for us for a time in this life. We have an everlasting rest awaiting us. So however stressful or problematic this life might be, however short or long this life might be, there is a place of everlasting rest and joy that awaits us that enables us to live our lives with complete abandon for God, because even if all this is taken away, it doesn't matter. We find that God comes and is our God, and we are his people. That he comes and makes us part of his family. Jesus comes into the scene of time, becomes a man, becomes our Savior, helps us know Him, know His Heavenly Father through the indwelling of His Holy Spirit. We are given a place. And so we find that we are sons and heirs of God. We are given a family, and a family that is not like any other family in this world. A family with an unbelievable, eternal inheritance. This is the gift of God at Christmas time that can never be taken away. It's great to meet together with your family and eat together and enjoy a time of, of warmth and happiness over Christmas. But if that's not going to describe Christmas 2020 or any other Christmas for that matter, then I want you to know there is a family that goes above and beyond the biological family you have. It is given through the gift of God at Christmas and can be enjoyed by you not just for Christmas 2020, but for every moment of every day from now on into eternity. I want you to know the blessing this Advent season of the family of God given to you through Christ's work on your behalf. Amen.